blind Bartimaeus, thief on the cross. How about one another? How about someone you didn't expect to be there? How about a John Bunyan or a George Whitfield or a John Calvin or a Augustine? Man, what a heritage we have. But most importantly, it'll be to, to be with Christ, which is far better. What a, what a composition of people that's going to be in that coming day. Let's read about one who, by the grace of God, came to know the Lord. Last week we were preaching in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 about Jesus building his church. We want to look now in John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 19 and talk about those who are brought from darkness to light from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, who have passed from death unto life in the newness of the spirit that we have in what has been created in us that God is actually looking for. We think of us looking for God, don't we? But the reality is that God is looking for us. When Jesus sent out his apostles and the disciples, he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In some ways, we can say that salvation is only to the lost sheep, those whom he has chosen in himself from before the foundation of the world. Read with me in John chapter 4, verse 19 and following. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, and I know you know who I'm talking about, right? This is a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at a well. He's tired and weary. He sits down and there's a a Samaritan woman. And he's engaging her. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, which is where they were at the time, Nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Oh, man, that must have caught her attention, huh? (laughs) I who speak to you am he. This is, you know who you're with right now? The very one you asked about is the one who's in your presence. Just then his disciples, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. What's so wrong about that? It was taboo. For a man to be talking to a woman, but most importantly, for a man to be talking to a Samaritan woman. Because the Samaritans and the Jews clashed. 
Maybe something like the Palestinians and the Israelis, if we can kind of get that picture in our mind, that sort of the kind of uh, hostility that existed between the two peoples, the Samaritans and the Jews. The chapter begins and it says it, that about Jesus that he must needs go through Samaria. He was in Judea. He's heading to go to Galilee. It's like us going from here to Maine. We've got to go through New Hampshire or maybe Vermont. It's inevitable. But Jesus could have taken a more popular route and a more acceptable route. He could have gone towards the east and gone up the Jordan River and totally went around the, the, uh, the district of Samaria. But it says he must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because there was somebody there he was going to meet. He knew in advance what, how this whole story was going to work out. He knew which well he was going to go to. He knew who, who was going to be there. And he knew what the conversation was going to consist of. Let's read on. Just then his disciples came back. They modeled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They dared challenge Christ, right? So the woman left her water jar her, or her water pot and went away into town and said to the people, what would you say if you met Jesus and you were going back to your home? She left her water pot. That's what she went to the well for. She left it. She found something better. She was coming to get water for her thirst. But she went to and discovered the one who could give her living water, that she would never thirst again. She was anxious to get back to town. She probably forgot about the water pot. This had, this had taken precedence over everything. She met Jesus, and now she's got her heart filled with a message and with a desire. I want to go and tell my people about what I just, who I just talked to. Come and see a man. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. She was ashamed of her past. Her past was exposed by someone who never met her. You've had five husbands, he told her, and the one you're living with is not your husband. Shame on you. But he doesn't use that language with her. He just brings to her attention with his knowledge, his omniscience, what was going on in her life. Just like when, was it uh, Philip that brought Nathaniel to Jesus? And Jesus tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. How did you see me under the fig tree? How did you know that I had five husbands in the man that I'm living with? You don't know. How could you know that? God was using this in her mind and heart. This is a special man. This got to be the Messiah. This is the prophet. I've, I got to tell my people about him. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, I see there are five individuals that Jesus deals with. One of them is Nicodemus. Here we have the Samaritan woman. Then we have the impotent man, the invalid that sat at the pool of Bethsaida. And then we have the blind man in chapter 9, or rather we have the adulterous woman in chapter 8, and then we have the blind man in chapter 9. So it's interesting if we zoom in a little bit on each of these individual people, 
in the Gospel of John. And I think for everybody here, likely the most familiar book to you would be the Gospel of John. So all of those names, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the man at the pool, the adulterous woman, the blind man, you're familiar with those individuals, I take it. Think of it this way. With Nicodemus, we get a religious man, a devout man, who Jesus is engaging. With the Samaritan woman and the adulterous woman, he has an immoral woman that he's dealing with. With the impotent man, or the invalid, and the blind man, he now is dealing with handicapped people. So religious people, immoral people, and handicapped people. Those seem to those seem to those that seem to be the summary of those five individuals. The spectrum, you could say, he crosses all the lines from the religious to the most immoral, to most despicable. Maybe you could say. Now here we have Jesus is in Samaria again. This is this is territory that should not have been tracked by a Judean. Somebody coming from Judea, I should say. Jesus was a Galilean. But this was not a common course of travel for a Jew to take. Just like no one would go to the tomb where the demoniac man was chained. No one dared to go there. Jesus, it says of him, he must needs go through Samaria. Praise God that he sought you out. Where were you hidden in your life? How far did he have to go to reach you? Did he have to needs go through such and such to find you? Was, was you in a category of life where no one wanted to get near you? No one wanted to touch that with you. But Jesus can do that. It's actually shocking that Jesus would engage this woman and bring her from darkness to light and give her the way of salvation and save her soul. What I want to draw your attention to mostly, though, is I want to talk to you about why God is seeking. This woman here is told by Jesus, you think that this mountain is a place where people ought to worship. Where was this mount that Jesus is talking about? Well, in 400 B.C., approximately 400 years before Christ came, the Samaritans had built a temple right there on that mount, which was in conflict or rivalry with the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe you're not aware, but the Samaritans only believed, like the Sadducees, in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The other books were not classified by them as canonical books, as sacred books. Therefore, those books didn't carry any weight with them. As a matter of fact, if you engage a Muslim at some time, you will discover, too, that they take bits and pieces out of the Old Testament and would recognize them as being sacred, but other portions they would discount. Well, the Samaritans, similarly, only, like the Sadducees, adopted the five books. So therefore, they felt that they had liberty to be able to choose Mount Gerizim, which was the place where blessings were read. If you remember when the Israelites came into the land, there were two mounts. 
uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. One was where they would read the blessings. The other one was where they would read the cursings. Just as they were about to go into the promised land. And, you know, that's true. There's, there's truths that we need to observe and there are things that we need to be warned from as well. There's a thou shouts and there's a thou shalt nots in the Bible. There's blessings and there's cursings. There's blessings for obedience. There's consequences to disobedience. We all need to know that as believers. We're called to obedience. We're called into the new Canaan, as it were, to enjoy the things that God has provided for us in that new lamb, the land. You worship, he says, you do not know. We, what, verse 22, know we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You know, in verse 21, Jesus says, The hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. The hour is coming. The hour now, as we look back and say, the hour has come. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, the hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth. He's talking about the future when his voice will be heard by all that are in the graves and all will be resurrected. But he says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth and live. What does he mean there? He's talking about those who are spiritually dead now, not then in the future when they're going to hear his voice and they're going to involuntarily all be raised from the dead. But now the time is coming when people who are spiritually dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and they're going to come forth. Praise God you've been raised from the dead. You have been spiritually resurrected because God has given you ears to hear. You have responded to that message and you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The hour has come. It's similar language here. When in the past, they had place a place of worship. That real place was Jerusalem. Because Jesus, when he says salvation is of the Jews, what he's saying is the truth can be traced historically in the line that comes the way before Jerusalem, goes back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the tribes, etc., and the occupation in the land, and David giving the pattern for the temple, and Solomon building the temple, and that temple becomes the site upon which God has chosen that he would meet with his people. Make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. That place is Jesus calls later when he walks in. You have made my father's house a den of thieves. He couldn't say that about Mount Gerizim Temple or any other place on earth for that matter. Because God had chosen Jerusalem to be the place where he had chosen to be putting his name. Not any other place upon the earth. The hour is coming and is now here, verse 23, when the true worshipers, prior to this there were those that were false worshipers. They were probably, referen being, he probably referencing the, the uh, Samaritans in other forms of worship, maybe by pagan 
or even by Jews who did not draw near like Jesus says, you draw near to me with what? With, with words only, but your heart is far from me. They draw near to God with their mouth, but their heart is far from him. They're not worshipers of God. They might be going through the form, like it says in 2 Timothy 3, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They don't have that internal, built-in, spiritual house of worship that wants to give God glory, praise, and honor. And really, the only true worshipers is what Jesus is highlighting here. Those who will be worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And if you look at your translation, this can be debated. Does your translation have the S as capitalized or is it a small s? So the, the discussion could be, is Jesus saying the only ones that can worship me in spirit and truth are those who have the Holy Spirit? If so, why isn't it a capital S or is it a capital S? That's why. Because the Father is seeking those people to worship him. If it's a small s, then he is saying there's a difference between worshiping God in a fleshly fashion, a fashion that is just simply rote, that is ceremonial, that is very rigid and it's very formal, and it's just going through the motions, possibly. Whereas when one is doing with spirit, in spirit, he's talking about the human spirit being generated of course, we know elsewhere that your spirit as a human being is called the lamp of the Lord's, but it's also the place where worship can spring from. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says to sing in the spirit and to pray in the spirit, to sing with the spirit. Now, again, the question would be, is it a capital S or is it a small s? I could go back and forth on that one. And I can say at least this for sure. That we are, it says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, I believe it says, we are the true worshipers who worship God in spirit. We're the real Israel of God who can really bring praise and honor and glory into the presence of God. Worship can't be memorized. You can't read something and just recite it and bring it in some fashion and say, I worship God. Worship has to come from the human spirit. It's something that, it's, that's the lifeline within us that we bring our praises into the presence of God. It's something that is energetic, something that has vigor in it. There's vitality in it. And when you got saved, your spirit was moved. It was affected by the Holy Spirit who generates the human spirit and creates that desire to want to praise him. What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your spirit, your body, your strength. All of that, everything is to him. We are really a burnt offering sacrifice to the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, they had an offering that were called um, the... Uh, the burnt offering that was burnt day and night. It was a, a, like an eternal offering. It constantly burned. From the tabernacle, smoke was always ascending to God. And the Bible says we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. God is depicted for our understanding 
having nostrils that inhales. And as we inhale things around us, good things, bad things, we, uh, that brings some kind of response from us. But we who are God's children bring into the presence of God a sweet fragrance of Christ. That's what we should be like. I was thinking of this as maybe an illustration. When Jephthah had made a vow to God and he said, after I defeat the Ammonites, whenever I arrive back, the first thing that comes to me, I will offer as a burnt offering to you. And when he comes back after the victory, he meets his daughter, a woman who has to be sacrificed. I don't know that it's a physical burning of her body, but I do believe it's a sacrifice of her life to offer to God in a way that she would be very unique in comparison to all the other women. It's kind of a vague illustration of when we meet Christ on the other side, after the victory, and we are the ones that first greet Him, as it were. We trust Him, we are loved by Him, and we are accepted by Him. We are ones that want to offer ourselves as a sweet savor of Christ to Him. God is seeking such to worship Him. We think that God wanted to save us so we could populate heaven, maybe. We think God wanted to save us because maybe He was lonely. He wanted people. Nonsense. God didn't need us in the first place. You could say we brought Him more headaches than hot joy. But He chose to save us. We think that He chose us so that we could be conformed to the image of His Son. Amen. He chose us that we could be witnesses unto Him. And if you were to ask the question, what are the two most important things for someone who's converted to be converted to? It would be to be a disciple and to be an evangelist or evangelizing. We want to be witnesses to him, right? And we want to be conformed to him. We want to be discipled in a way that we're following in his footsteps. We're taking up the cross daily and following him. But there's another one that I think even transcends both of them. And that's right here. God seeks such to worship him. You are, if you're a child of God, if you're born again, you are bringing great desire to God. Not just when the church comes together and we sing great songs of the faith or that we're reading the word and our brothers are opening up the scriptures edifying us through the word, that certainly creates worship. Even when we give our offering, that's a form of worship. But believe it or not, we should be 24-hour worshipers in that we're bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's something that's constant. And I know there are definitely, we sleep, okay? We sleep, some of you guys sleep five or six hours. Shame on you. But... Uh, However long you sleep, obviously those are times that you're not actively praising God. And there are things that we get occupied with work and other things, chores that we have to do. Nevertheless, we are still classified as burnt offerings to God in the sense that we are ones who God desires us to bring worship into His presence. How do we worship? What does the word worship itself mean? Where's the first mention of worship even in the Bible? Anybody know? First mention of worship in the Bible. I had to think a little bit about that, but I knew, Marcus. Genesis 22. I and the child will go. 
and in worship. And when we return, you know that portion in Genesis 22. That's the first mention of the word worship. That Hebrew word for worship actually means to bow down. To bow down. That's a common posture. You'll even find the Muslims, you watch them on TV now, they get down on, it, it, it's kind of a, a, a pious looking thing in sight to see men especially, but anybody getting down on the all fours before an almighty God. Bowing down was, was the posture of expression of reverence, of, of getting to God and honoring him. But in the New Testament, we have another word. In the word, I don't think I wrote it down, but it's composed of two meanings. One is the, is the word kiss, and the other word is towards. The combination of two, really, worship is to kiss towards. And God is the object of who we are kissing towards. God Almighty. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy glory and honor they were created. He is worthy. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We wonder what heaven's going to be like. Our brother gave us a little picture of that, uh, that gigantic table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What will it be to dwell above and with the saints of glory reign? It's a hard concept to, to get your head around explaining what that's going to be like. But because you have been created in Christ to be a new creation and a worshiping person, this is not going to be an unfamiliar thing taking place in heaven to worship the Lord because we're worshipers here right now. God seeketh such to worship Him. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's no other way of worshiping him. Like when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The only way to worship God is by spirit and truth. You can't manufacture somebody or disciple somebody to be a worshiper. They've got to be converted. And once they're converted, they're installed with a spiritual mechanism, if you will, that just like a burnt, continual burnt offering, it's called. It comes to my mind. Continual burnt offering where that smoke would ascend day and night. It was never put out. That's what we should be to the Lord. God seeketh such to worship Him. Then verse 25, the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who was called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Again, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. We mentioned this already. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They're not going to question the master. The teacher must have a purpose. They come back with food, and they're wondering how Jesus has lasted so long without food. And he says, what? The will of, I'm doing the will of my, my, my food and my drink is to do the will of him that sent me. Talk about somebody who brought praise and worship to God. 
It was Christ. He was the epitome of a consistent, faithful witness of worship to God. My meat and drink is to do the will of him that sent me. And if we're going to be Jesus' followers, we have to, in some ways, mimic that. There has to be some traces of us being Jesus' followers. What's going to create worship in your heart? There's a number of things that God utilizes. Number one, his word. These things are written so that we can believe. These things are written so we can be strengthened. These things are written so that we can grow in knowledge and in grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have one another. One can't be warm alone. Two is better than one. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. So gathering the spiritual energy from the people of God is a wonderful thing that will build us up on our most holy faith. We have access to God by prayer. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Flee from the devil. He will flee from you. I was talking to um, someone just recently having some marital problems and uh, I believe that the person is in a state of disobedience and rebellious to the Word. And she kept saying, I can't do it, I can't do it. I said, listen, the Bible says His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You can't say that you can't do what God gives you the equipment to do. You either don't have it or you're calling God a liar. Or your spirit of rebellion is such that it will not concede to letting the Lord work in your life in such a way that it's bringing glory and honor and praise to God. And you are feeling a fresh spirit of energy of wanting to praise the Lord. We all need, don't we, to be lifted up and encouraged we need to be blessed by the Lord. We need to hear the word. You know, the challenge, big challenge that I have, I'm trying to take this book that's 2,000 plus years old of writers and writing and trying to bring it right up to the 21st century. How do you bridge that gap? There are things obviously that are obsolete by time and culture, etc., but nevertheless the word of the Lord endures forever. God's not surprised that 2,000 years have gone by since Christ was here, right? He's not, this is not a shock to him. He's not a shock, shocked by the LGBTQ plus movement that's going on or by the war going on right now in Israel and Gaza City and so on. He's not taken by surprise by all of that. We want to say, come Lord Jesus. We want to maybe feel like we want to wake God up and say, do you see what I see? What's the problem, Lord? Can't you bring justice in this world? But for some reason, he's delaying his coming. And what he's done is he put responsibility on you and I to be the lights of the world. And how do you do that when the, when the darkness getting darker and darker and darker? It becomes very difficult. The pressure's on us. But you know, what it's going to do, it's going to make the light burn more. And we need to have our lamps filled with oil. Trim your lamps and be ready. These are days that we need to be ready. This is the time, as we are saying last week about the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If God is seeking people to worship him, and here Jesus is picking on a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands, she's living with a sixth man, and Jesus is seeking her. She's even debating him about the mountain. Well, I'm on the right mountain worshiping God. 
You say Jerusalem is the place, and th there's something going on between them. Nicodemus is concerned, too. He's having a bit of a religious debate with Jesus about this whole new birth thing. What do you mean we have to go a second time into our mother's womb? And then the, 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 the impotent man at the pool of Bethsaida is told when Jesus heals him, he had never walked, and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And it happened to be the Sabbath day. The man that was blind in chapter 9, he took clay and, and put it on his eyes and he anointed his eyes. He says, go to the water and wash yourself. It happened to be the Sabbath day. The Jews only were concerned that he was a Sabbath breaker. And the, the man that's healed, is, that, 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 that was blind, that could see, and basically, I'm paraphrasing, saying, are you kidding me? Look at what he did for me. You want to be concerned about this day? That I, it's not being observed. The man who, who gave me my body strength to be able to walk said to me, take up your bed and walk. That's good enough for me. Because no one, he, he too probably said, this got to be the Messiah. This got to be the Son of God. This is something that no one can do. This is unheard of. This is a miracle of miracles. It's a Samaritan woman. Her, she's in the uh, adulterous condition. She's, she's the immoral woman. The adulterous woman, obviously, Moses said that this woman should be stoned. There again is that religious challenge to Jesus. Like, no, because why did they do that? Because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to find an occasion against him so that they could incarcerate him and likely crucify him even later. So they thought they could get a case against him and pit Moses against Jesus. Moses said this. Do you dare challenge Moses? Jesus didn't say, I'm going to challenge Moses. John chapter 1 begins by saying that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. If you were under a Mosaic law, your guilt would be such that you would be stoned. Which one of you is without sin cast the first stone? They went all out from the first to the last. As Jesus is writing on the ground, what he wrote, I don't know. We could only guess of what he was writing. But he was writing with his finger. That finger was a finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. Because God wrote with his finger on the tablets of stone all the Ten Commandments. He's now writing on the, du on the dust of the earth. But he could rise up by basically saying, hmm, we're transcending this. Grace is going to abound. Where the law abounded, grace did much more abound. And now the one who's full of grace and truth can say to the woman, your sins are forgiven you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Hallelujah. You're not condemned. You deserve to be condemned, every one of you on this seat. And the speaker, we all deserve condemnation. But praise God, that's been reversed. He's brought us up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay. He set our feet upon a rock. He has put a new song in our mouth, even praise to our God. Oh, I wonder what it was like when that woman back went back to Samaria. I bet she was running as fast as she could. I can't wait to get, get there. I've got to tell these people, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I was. Is not this the Christ? Oh, yeah? Come on, let's go. We're following you. Bring us to Jesus. And when they come, it says, they didn't believe on him because of what she said. 
but because of what he said. For we have seen him for ourselves and heard him for ourselves. Now we know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow, what a gospel we have. Sometimes someone asked me yesterday, why do you always say when, when you're asked, you, you, uh, when, when people say, how are you doing? I say, too good. And they, he said, why do you always say too good? Because the psalmist says, these things are too wonderful for me. That's how we should all feel. It's amazing what he's done for you. You know, the more wretched we realize that we are, the more praiseful we're going to be for the grace of God that saved a wretch like us. Doesn't matter how, how young you were when you were saved, what your lifestyle was like in the past, you were still saved by amazing grace and you were still a wretch. And you still needed the new birth like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was that other individual I said that had a bit of a kind of a controversy with Jesus about the new birth and questioning about, what do you mean? I, I think it was almost a sarcastic remark. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? But he heard the Lord, and the next thing we read about Nicodemus, he's with a council of Pharisees who are going to try to find fault with Jesus so that they can incriminate him. And when they go after meeting Jesus, they come back, and the word is asked them, well, where is he? And they spoke up and said, never a man spoke like this man. We, we could find no fault with this man. Never a man spoke like this man. The Samaritan woman goes into the city to, to tell abroad what she, who she discovered. The, 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 uh, the, the uh, impotent man that was healed at the water. He's also boasting about Jesus. He's the one, Jesus, who said to me, take up your bed and walk. The ninth chapter, the blind man said, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one that told me to go and wash in the pool. And the adulterous woman is told, go and sin no more. There's got to be something that follows our conversion. You know, all of these things, our responses to the gospel, is what should be bringing praise to God. We're worshipers of God. God seeketh such to worship Him. Those who are found in the book of Revelation, our brother was reading about, those whose names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. What were their actions? They were like Daniel, I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel in the book of Daniel, in like the, the, the ones in Elijah's day. The, how many that didn't bow the knee? How many thousands or hundreds was it that they didn't? Seven, 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal, neither kissed him? In the book of Revelation, you have those who would not bow, who would not take the, sea, the, the mark of the beast, as it were. These are the ones that are entitled to be in the glassy sea and cast their golden crowns and be able to sing, Holy, holy, holy. That's the song of the redeemed in glory. That's what angels were doing in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. They had to cover their face they had to cover their body. They had to call, cover certain parts so that when they get into the presence of God, they could really truthfully be singing, holy, holy, holy. Not just once, not just twice, but three times the word is repeated over and over again. To Moses, God says at the burning bush, the ground that you stand on is holy ground. 
over and over and throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, it all breathes the truth that God is holy. And he tells us, be ye holy, for I am holy. That is impossible apart from having the Holy Spirit of God. If you're not born again, try to get like God and be holy. That's a task that you'll never accomplish and you'll be miserable doing it. You'll go through it in a legalistic fashion and you're never going to feel content or satisfied. Your conscience will never be at ease because you're not a true worshiper of God. But God seeketh such to worship Him. Might you and I be those burnt offerings, that continual burnt offerings of bringing praise to God. Sing to Him. Pray to Him. Praise Him. Gather with God's people. Enjoy the Lord in your heart. As it says in Peter, sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You'll want to give God glory and praise when you sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And that's an ongoing process that God's people need to be accomplishing so that we can, we can bring the praises of God into His presence and into His courts with praise. So let's be a praiseful people, a worshipful people, because that's why God intended to save you. Let's close by singing this last psalm. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Let's get